Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Keith Rathbone, coming to you live from Macquarie University, and I'm here today with Andrew R. M. Smith, Assistant Professor of History at Nichols College and author of a great new book, which I had the pleasure of reading uh, last week, No Way But to Fight, George Foreman in the Business of Boxing, which is out from UT Austin. Andrew, tell us when your book came out. Sure. Well, this was a project that uh, I began when I started my PhD program. I knew that I wanted to do uh, a topic not just on sport, but specifically on boxing. I knew that I thought uh, boxing was a perfect lens to look at racial, ethnic, gendered conflicts in American history. So I was sifting through potential subjects and topics. And really, it was a conversation uh, with a colleague over lunch where we started going over not just subjects, but he said, well, why don't you think about the time periods and the events that we want to cover? And that's when it just became so clear that George Foreman's life intersected with a lot of the really important uh, historical markers in the post-war era in the American context, and that no one had written his biography yet. And so from that moment on, uh, it's been about a decade-long process from graduate seminar papers to PhD dissertation uh, to editing, revising, and turning out a book. Yeah, I, I, I feel your story resonating with me a little bit, too, because I, I think we sometimes... Um, sports historians can need that little permission when you're a graduate student to, to work on sports, because I, I certainly felt that myself. Um, was this project always, I, what, what genre would you characterize this as? Because at times I thought, oh, this is a, a biography. And then at other times I thought, actually, this is about a lot more than George Foreman. You know, he's not, he's not only the, he's not even at some points in time, the focus of the book, maybe it's about uh, mega events. So how did you how did you decide how you wanted to frame this project? And has it always been the same frame? Right. Well, yeah, it's always been a biography of George Foreman, but a biography that was meant to tell a lot of other stories. And so that's why I really tried to expand where I could on the context, uh, like you say, mega events and the history of boxing, the business of boxing, as the subtitle came to be after much deliberation, of course. Um, I think that it's such an important life to study because it can show us so many things uh, that you don't always get from famous celebrity athletes. Sometimes their circumstances are just so extraordinary that it's hard to draw any extra lessons from it, or it's hard to use them to examine uh, anything that would be more broadly applicable. But what I loved about George Foreman's story is he's just so extraordinarily ordinary. He's so regular in so many ways and lived through so many things that a lot of Americans did, but those aren't the kinds of people who were famous or studied or left the letters and documents for us to reconsider as historians decades later. So I think it's just a great example of a special person who came from very regular circumstances, and that lets historians tell not just the extraordinary stories, but the very ordinary ones too. So um, one of the, the major themes that I, I pulled out from the book, and if you let me just you know engage it for a few minutes with some of the broader themes, because um, that's what I like to do. Um, but this adaptability and agency of George Foreman throughout uh, his career, which spanned such a, a, a long time frame, um, how did you how did you land kind of on what that as one of your as one of your major themes? 
Well, that became really clear uh, early in the story. I think the first chapter I started drafting as a seminar paper was the chapter about the Olympics. And, um, you know, one of the missions of the book really came to be restoring that agency back to George Foreman because he, like a lot of other athletes, sometimes we only ever consider in snapshots in the moment, um, you know, especially uh, short writings from journalists who were there at that time. And we can lose sight of what went on behind the scenes, the antecedents. Um, with Foreman, I felt like he had been limited to some of those multiple snapshots, granted, but some of those snapshots of the 1968 Olympics or the fight with Muhammad Ali or the comeback and the cheeseburgers and the grill. And so it was really fascinating to draw the connective tissue out uh, and you know, demonstrate how conscious he was of some of these adaptations and some of these changes. I mean, these were purposeful decisions made by a really thoughtful individual, not always for better, sometimes for worse, uh, but we can't take away the fact that he was the one leading the charge in many of these situations. Yeah, in some ways, this uh, reframes the image of the boxer, you know, away from the kind of story that maybe I'm, I'm more familiar with, which is the boxer as tool <laughs> um, and then the addled after career boxer. I mean, it seems like Foreman was always in control in some ways um, and maybe had a unique relationship with his, his uh, manager. Is that, is that a fair reading? He certainly took more control much earlier than a lot of other boxers did. Um, and when you talk to him and when you look at his sort of life, uh, holistically, that wasn't um, an anomaly. I mean, that's that's George Foreman. He likes to answer his own phones. He likes to do his own taxes. Um, he spent <laughs> a very short period of time as a boxer under a manager. And then right after he wins the championship in 1973, he decides he's going to manage himself. He can do well enough. He can manage himself. Now, he finds out it's much harder than he expected, as a lot of other 20-somethings do when they start striking out on their own. Um, and I think that leads to the, the George Foreman we know from sort of the you know, ni- late 1973 into 1974, who's not quite the uh, gregarious, happy-go-lucky figure that we think of today. Um, but yeah, he, he took charge of his career. He made his own choices. He was very conscious of how the public viewed him, and he made purposeful adaptations in his public image to try and alter that at different points in time. So he really did exercise a lot more agency than a lot of other professional athletes choose to or are allowed to, um, and particularly in the 1960s and 70s. So I, this is going to, I'd love to get kind of into the, 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 the breadth of the bio now, uh, although this is going to seem a strange question given um, our discussion of him having so much agency, which is, if, if I was a little surprised in reading um, the first chapters on his upbringing in Houston, that he almost is a, in some ways kind of a coincidental boxer. <laughs> he, he, he took, can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, what his upbringing was like, um, especially kind of in this um, Vietnam era, and and how he became a boxer in the first place? Is it something he trained for his whole youth or what, when did he decide, ah, maybe I can do this? That was also a really interesting revelation between doing the traditional print source research and then talking to him. This is someone who today loves to talk boxing. If you see him on Twitter, he's predominantly tweeting about boxing. 
when I talked to him, his favorite things to discuss were certainly boxing. But if you go back in time, this was not someone who was born and raised a boxing fan. In fact, he's a teenager before uh, he even has what you know, an encounter with a slugger, his brother says, which he interprets as a boxer in prison. Uh, and then he, you know, the first fight that he recalls listening to is Muhammad Ali versus Sonny Liston the first time around. And those don't make a great impression on him until a little later when he's listening to Muhammad Ali and Floyd Patterson, and he's at a job corps center hanging out with some other corpsmen. And they start, as teenage boys do, needling each other a little bit and saying, you know, if you're so tough, maybe you should be a boxer. And that's when he started to think about boxing as a recreation, not a profession. But there were other Job Corps centers he knew about from reading the Job Corps newsletters that had recreational programs, including boxing. He is at a very small camp in Oregon that had limited facilities. But if you went to some of the more urban centers, there were more options. So he knew that in Pleasanton, California, they had uh, team sports, they had boxing, they hosted a boxing tournament. He could do electrical assembly work instead of the construction work he had been doing in Oregon. So he chose consciously to transfer to that Pleasanton Job Corps Center. And he found the boxing coach and he asked if he could you know, start boxing. And then he realized he wasn't good at it and didn't like it and tried to leave. But by then the coach, this is Doc Rodas, uh, isn't going to let him go. And so he follows up and he really pushes George Foreman to start practicing. I wouldn't even say training, but practicing boxing and learning a little bit about boxing. And then, you know, it just becomes so good so fast. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say, I was, I was really struck in your first chapters about um, how, how his life, Foreman's life was in some ways constrained by these limitations of the Vietnam era. Like he seemed to only have, a few possibilities and, and he really um, navigated deftly uh, between them. You know, it was like, well, is he going to get in trouble? He's from the, one of the roughest areas of Houston. Maybe he'll end up in jail uh, or the job corps. Maybe he can stay in the job corps for a long time, or is he going to end up in the military uh, drafted to go to, to, to Vietnam? And he kind of deftly maneuvers. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's, I mean, it seems, you know, sudden, although it wasn't, uh, so sudden, I'm sure for him uh, that he's competing in the in the in the '68 um, Olympics. So how how does he go from practicing, as you say, or just um, playing at boxing with the Job Corps to all of a sudden, um, you know, representing the country uh, at the Olympic Games? Well, that certainly wasn't his intention. He enjoyed boxing, and he liked accumulating a couple of trophies, but he was perfectly content to finish his job course stint. He had learned what he wanted to learn. He had uh, achieved his high school equivalency. He had some background in electrical assembly. He was ready to go back to Houston, brag a little bit about his boxing trophies, get a job, get a car, maybe his own place. I mean, these were about the, uh, the extent of his aspirations. But the the inability to find full-time work in Houston after he had completed his job core requirements um, and the fact that he couldn't really get out of the same circumstances that led him to go to the job core, which is hanging out on Lions Ave in the fifth ward of Houston, um, engaging in misdemeanor, if not felonious conduct, stealing, fighting, drinking. Um, you know, that's what really pushed him 
back to the Job Corps and his mother actually contacting Doc Rodas and really asking to take Foreman back so that he could get out of this scenario because it looked like a few years after, you know, he was coming back to the very same circumstances and wasn't going to get any further ahead. So he, he goes to the Olympics and um, while he's there, he, he uh, well, you can tell us how he does at the Olympics, but also while he's there, he's playing a certain kind of politics. And I'm, this was one for me, one of the most fascinating parts of the book was um, the way in which Foreman played with the politics of the age, both uh, intra-racial and interracial. So I'm wondering if you can kind of talk a little bit about uh, Foreman at the Olympic Games and, and why the 68 moment was so important for um, you know ra- racial politics in the United States and sport and how Foreman fit into that conversation. Sure. So when he returns to the job corps to work rather than to study, the same boxing coach, Brodus, is the one who sort of sets the parameters that we are going to go to the Olympics, uh, which is difficult. It requires uh, winning a lot of amateur tournaments and competing with uh, some really seasoned amateur boxers, particularly service members, uh, because the service academies put a, a primacy on boxing in the amateur context. But he manages to win enough tournaments, win the right tournaments to earn a spot, a tryout for that U.S. Olympic boxing team, which he hadn't really envisioned until it was upon him. Uh, Like a lot of 18-year-olds, you know, things happen so quickly that you don't think of it. But in terms of the racial politics leading up to those 1968 Olympics, specifically the Olympic Project for Human Rights, the uh, few professional and the many... um, student athletes across the country that were trying to use their place as athletes to draw attention to uh, racial inequality and to affect some change. You've got to remember that George Foreman didn't go to college. Boxers typically didn't go to college. The OPHR um, you know, wasn't really thinking of boxers probably as the key to their movement. They really needed the high-profile professional athletes and in amateurs, uh, you know, track stars that, that got more attention. So he really doesn't get the same exposure to the ideas of the movement that some other uh, Olympic hopefuls did. In particular, he doesn't get to learn from someone like Harry Edwards the way that Tommy Smith and John Carlos got to. So he is sort of aloof from that movement. And the other part of that is he's going to the Olympics as the youngest member on the boxing team. And it's a team that's majority service members. So they also have a pretty fixed politics, at least in terms of their uh, allegiance to the nation state, right? And so he is separated from some of those ideas uh, that play out on, on podiums in 1968. Now, he said that when he heard Smith and Carlos had been dismissed from the Olympics for their uh, podium demonstration, he was really upset. I mean, he thought that was... Uh, an overreach that was an unnecessary, harsh penalty. He didn't know them very well, but he had seen them around. And the thought of any athlete going all the way to Mexico, winning uh, the gold or the bronze and getting a chance to get on the podium and then being sent home and having those medals taken away really did um, unnerve him. But it wasn't going to stop him from competing. Uh, And it wasn't going to stop one of the assistant coaches who was also a service member Hal Rogers from putting a flag in his pocket. And when he wins the gold medal, 
you can see that he pulls the flag out and he waves it, but there's not a lot of time or attention spent on that movement, even though that's what we really remember from George Foreman in the 1968 Olympics. If you watch the clips, uh, the flag waving is pretty short, and then he starts this more sort of intricate dancing version of the bowing to four corners that was kind of a traditional expectation of Olympic boxers winning the gold. That seems like the part that he had put some thought into, Um, you know, this sort of cool modern interpretation uh, of the bowing to four corners. It didn't seem like there was as much thought put into waving the flag. And it's kind of understandable that he wouldn't have seen that as a counter demonstration, because I I don't think he was as exposed to uh, the depth of the protest from Smith, Carlos, and some other uh, African-American athletes at the 1968 Olympics. So he's really surprised when he comes back home and some people resent him for having waved a flag. Throughout his career, just to kind of con- continue along this line, uh, he play- has to play again, or play against, maybe is a better way of saying it, against this kind of conversation about the black athlete. And, and it, within the context of this larger revolt of the black athlete, of course, um, of, of which Ali, Ali, Muhammad Ali is probably the best uh, exemplar. Um, so I was wondering how much you felt in, in writing the biography that his um, playing at patriotism or, or being patriotic and then at times being uh, uh, an avatar of soul masculinity, uh, let's just say soul, you know, S-O-U-L masculinity. Um, is, is this all situational for him or is, is this about um, is kind of development of kind of genuine feelings, but changing over time. So I was, I, I was a little bit curious while reading about that. You know, was it always it was it always brand foreman, or was it was it uh, this kind of long development of, of his own uh, perception about what it meant to be a black athlete? I think there's a little bit of both at play, but I think we're also dealing with a teenager and then someone in their early twenties who is just changing and adapting the way a lot of us did. And so if you see him before the 1968 Olympics, he seems to be mimicking Muhammad Ali. He's trying to rhyme while he's shadow boxing when there's a reporter in the room. Uh, And then you see, after waving the flag, some of the positive attention he gets. Uh, He really embraces that image when he does decide to turn professional. And before his first fight, he agrees to something that uh, John Condon, who was the PR specialist of Madison Square Garden, asked him to do, which is to stand outside the garden and hand out some miniature American flags and really capitalize on that patriotic persona. And then when that seems to have stalled his progress, when people aren't terribly interested in that image anymore, it seems like his manager at the time, Dick Sadler, is asking him to, to change his image uh, and become a little bit harder, a little bit tougher, maybe a little bit more menacing. But of course, this is a manager who had been leading the comeback of Sonny Liston uh, at the same time and maybe had a particular image in his mind. And Foreman didn't really take that uh, as a whole, but he, again, sort of adapts those messages to what he knows and to his context. And you know, the way I write it, he looks a lot more like John Shaft or some of the black exploitation protagonists than he does Sonny Liston. And that becomes really effective in the racial political climate uh, in boxing, especially between Joe Frazier, who tended to be, um, you know, aligned with 
if not conservatism, accommodationism, the mainstream civil rights movement, and then Muhammad Ali, on the other hand, who, of course, an icon of uh, black radicalism, Foreman really fits squarely in between them in the same way that black exploitation movies did, where they would you know, equally mock the radicals and the accommodationists for their cool, aloof, detached, but tough protagonist. It did seem, and I, 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 I want to spend more time on this, but it did seem that he was stuck in this triangle between uh, Frazier and Ali. And, and just as you say, like um, a, a different kind of avatar of black masculinity, less accommodationist, but also not, uh, not radical. But it took a while for him to get there, right? I mean, he, he, does, he doesn't leave the Olympics brand foreman um, ready to fight. Um, for the heavyweight championship. So can you tell us a little bit about this kind of, again, this new transition from amateur into pro? And uh, is this something that occurs naturally? Is he all ready to turn pro right after 68? Or what happens there? Exactly. He really is not committed to a professional career, even after the Olympics. He is still toying with the idea of working at the Job Corps and maybe going to college in the area. Um, he, in other words, hasn't made up his mind. His decision gets rushed a little bit because that Job Corps Center is one of many across the country that starts closing down, even before the change in administrations, which would really expedite uh, the Job Corps closures. Pleasanton is one of the places that is going to be shut down, and so his sort of fallback plan is gone, and that's when he agrees to continue boxing, but he actually doesn't uh, turn professional right away. And that's part of why Dick Sadler is the manager that he chooses to work with, because Sadler agrees not to draw up a contract right now, not to force anything. He was going to keep giving Foreman opportunities to fight um, as an amateur on sunny listing cards or other Bay Area fight cards, because in California, that was still legal to have amateur fights on professional cards until Foreman was ready. And he's ready when Madison Square Garden calls and offers what then was a huge prize, $5,000 uh, for, for a debut fight. And there's sort of an agreement that we've come this far. If we're going to turn pro, this is the fight and this is the purse that you turn pro for. Um, and we'll just sort of see how it goes from there. So he, he turns pro and then um, uh, Dick Sadler has him fighting just what seemed to me in reading it just a lot of fights. <laughs> What was their strategy? How did they envision going from, hey, you're this amateur, you're kind of well-known because you won uh, the Olympics, but you're not really well-known. And if you fought against one of the top heavyweights right now, you'd get creamed. So how, how does he go from being this, um, you know, an amateur who can command a big purse for his first fight to being a competitor? The strategy is old school even in the 1960s. It's throwing back to the person that taught Dick Sadler, and that was Doc Kearns. Doc Kearns was Jack Dempsey's manager, uh, and he was very conscious also of public images, and that's why sometimes Jack Dempsey seemed to be cast as a hero, and at other times he could be cast as a villain, and whatever made more money and drew more interest, they were fine with. So Dick Sadler was a protege of that school, and you mentioned well-knownness. That was really the key. They needed to increase the well-knownness of George Foreman. So for Sadler, that meant what was essentially a barnstorm. I mean, running Foreman 
all around the country fighting as often as he can because that generated the most headlines and it um, crafted a really impressive boxing record. Every time he wins, especially every time he knocks someone out, that's another win against zero losses. And so it started to build a reputation both in the ring and outside the ring for George Foreman to try and insert himself into the discussions about a contender for a heavyweight championship. And he kept fighting. Some of the names that people he were, were, was fighting against were, I think, telling. I mean, the Bayon Bleeder. And then, <laughs> I mean, he, he, were, were all these people real competitors? or what? It, it seemed like a lot of the time he was fighting against people who everyone acknowledged or, or believed would probably go down pretty, pretty, um, pretty quickly. Uh, and maybe that was, maybe that was good for his well-knownness, but not necessarily great for his development as a boxer. And of course there's this racial uh, politics under underlying all this too. So um, I'm wondering, if you can talk a little bit about, you know, why it was necessary for a guy like Foreman to do this and, and, how race and and um, and expectations about skills as a boxer, you know, uh, Im- impacted their kind of strategy moving forward. That was certainly intentional. Uh, that was Dick Sadler arranging matches to make sure that Foreman would not really be threatened because he knew he was still young and he was still uh, really an inexperienced boxer compared to a lot of the people he would be up against. What I found really interesting when I talked to Foreman, I had this picture of Dick Sadler from the print sources as very much focused on the business. Uh, He came from Ohio to California, not just to box and train boxers, but also as a piano player, singer, entertainer. And so I really had this image of him focusing on the sales and not so much on the skills in the ring. But when I talked to Foreman, he said, Dick Sadler, really was a terrific boxing person. I mean, a great trainer, a coach who uh, gave Foreman a crash course in boxing that he hadn't really been able to get in the job corps that he'd only scratched the surface of. So Sadler really did hone his skills, particularly in the gym. That's something else Foreman said that he would, he would be allowed to box in the gym when they were training. But in the ring, when it was for real, Sadler didn't want him to box. He wanted to knock the other person out. He didn't want to leave anything to chance, anything to referees or judges, because Sadler had also been steeped in the, the IBC era of boxing, um, which was you know the era when organized crime had the most influence over professional boxing. And so Dick Sadler had seen a lot of things uh, with a cynical eye in the sport, and he didn't want Foreman to be affected by any of that. So it was a conscious choice to match him up against people he could beat, people who he could knock out, uh, and sort of amass this record that would give them leverage to demand bigger fights and particularly a championship fight when they were able. I think what they didn't foresee, what a lot of boxing people didn't foresee, was how good that first Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier fight was going to be. So good that the sport almost goes on hold as they try to figure out the terms for negotiating a rematch. Uh, And that's where Foreman seems stuck until it becomes evident that the rematch is not going to be agreed on. They're too far apart. And Foreman is able to creep into the void uh, and unexpectedly win a title. Yeah. So um, I want to ask about that, but before I, before I do, I just have to mention one of the things I thought was really um, 
really funny in your book was uh, the description of, of, of Foreman as not being able allowed to drink water <laughs> 24 hours before the fight, which goes so contrary to what I think people would suggest today, which is, you know, to stay well hydrated. <laughs> We are in a different era of sports science. And also, again, I mean, you can get a glimpse into how much superstition uh, surrounds boxing in particular. And so, like Foreman said, that just became a ritual. That was just an event. That's what they did. And it, you know, was meant to drive his thirst, I guess, in a physical as well as a metaphorical sense. But I think now we would recognize that that might put you at risk. Yeah. And how do you, how do you, I mean, I guess most of his fights weren't going past three rounds, but how do you go to eight, nine, 15 rounds without having had any water to drink? You're right. He rarely went more than a few rounds in those early fights. And the couple of times he did, he didn't look particularly good. Uh, And even Muhammad Ali at ringside in one of those fights was, was saying that uh, Foreman's management had been nursing him along and this is what happens. Um, and that maybe came back uh, when he does have to go uh, a longer fight with a more seasoned veteran like Muhammad Ali. So how does so how does uh, Foreman get into this conversation with uh, Muhammad Ali, with Frazier, and there are other people like Norton, uh, kind of on this on the side of this too. Like what? It does seem like he, there was a log jam. How does he break through and all of a sudden end up in this in a title contention fight? Well, the logjam really uh, filtered down to just Frazier and Ali because they were not just so good, but also because they so perfectly reflected, um, you know, the two of the main visions of African-American men uh, in the early 1970s. But when they can't figure out uh, agreeable terms for a second fight, there is pressure from boxing on Joe Frazier to defend the title. He had already defended against two people that were really seen uh, as, you know, tune-up matches or warm-up matches, Terry Daniels and Ron Stander. And so he's getting pressure not just to defend again, but to defend against someone. It doesn't have to be a top contender, but someone. Foreman had recently worked his way into the top 10, largely by beating George Shavalo who was probably on the downward slope of his career, but had just come off of a really impressive win uh, against Jerry Quarry, and that vaulted his name recognition. So there's almost a snowball effect for Foreman then. Uh, And so he is just good enough to meet the needs of boxing and Frazier in that he is somewhat known, and you can argue should be at least in the top 10. But he's not so good that he would have been seen as a real threat. Most people in boxing did not believe that George Foreman was a credible threat to Joe Frazier because he didn't seem to be particularly skilled. He seemed to be a one-trick pony, throwing big punches, knocking people out. Uh, And they thought that Joe Frazier was just so experienced and so relentless that he would probably expose the flaws in a young George Foreman's game. I don't think they realized how that disparity in style was really going to work in George Foreman's Frazier and against uh, George Foreman's favor and against Joe Frazier. So I'm wondering if you can, uh, one of the pleasures I had in, in reading your book was in your ability to give a thick description of some of the events. I'm wondering if you can, you can tell us a little bit about, you know, Foreman's style in the ring and maybe what was, ha- well, even if you could, what happened in that first uh, fight with Frazier or fight with Frazier where he wins the title. Uh, 
because it was a real pleasure. Um, I'm even curious how you did it, <laughs> uh, how you how you got all the details. Um, but reading this kind of thick description of the fights themselves, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I was trying not to retread territory that had already been covered, and especially some of these fights, you know, in their time had been covered by really great sports writers. Red Smith, George Plimpton, uh, Norman Mailer will cover, obviously, some. Mark Cram, I mean, some great sports writers. So I was trying to retell the stories, but with a little bit of a, a different insight. And so I did comb as many newspapers and sport magazines and boxing magazines as I could, weekly major national papers, uh, daily national papers, weekly African-American papers, and then tried to insert as much of Foreman's memories as I could, particularly the stories that I could verify. So that Joe Frazier fight becomes a really interesting contest between two people who are just so vastly different. They feel like they're at different stages of their career. Joe Frazier has been champion for a while. He's frustrated that maybe he didn't get the respect he deserved for beating Muhammad Ali. He wants to do maybe as much singing as he does boxing. It's an easier way to make some money. Uh, and Joe and George Foreman is young and he becomes singularly focused on this title shot now. Um, and you just see two boxers sort of heading in alternate trajectories. And then you get this really interesting foreshadowing in that training practice that Foreman had, which for in, was mostly, I'm sure, for show for the press. When Sadler holds on to a big old heavy bag and Foreman just hammers away at it and you see the fist imprints and sometimes sand gets knocked loose and it's just an impressive, frightening display of power that shouldn't really have a lot of resonance in an actual boxing match. But when you put that against Joe Frazier, his height, his stature, his style, being shorter, fighting lower, and always moving forward, he actually walks into that same maneuver. Foreman stands up and punches down. Frazier keeps moving forward and getting hit. And so this, this exercise that was probably more for theatrics than anything else becomes the determinant of the fight. And after getting knocked down a couple of times, Joe Frazier's in unfamiliar territory. He continues to keep the fight up. George Foreman is in control and he doesn't let up. And we're only two rounds in and Arthur McCanty has to call the fight because it's just obvious that Joe Frazier is in harm. Yeah, that was a, an interesting note that you had included at a few places, which is that one of the mistakes fighters made when fighting against uh, Foreman was getting up too quickly, <laughs> that they should have stayed down a little longer, let the count play out a little longer before getting up so that they could have regained some of their composure. But Frazier just kept getting up <laughs> and getting knocked right back down. It felt like he only knew one way to fight, and that's the way he was going to do it. And in that contest anyway it cost him a heavyweight championship now the book is as, as you as you noted earlier it's is a bio of george foreman but it's also about the business of boxing um and so one of the one of the themes one of the threads that you uh, play out is how boxing uh, helped give rise to to international uh, mega events so i'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what's boxing's role in the creation of, of mega events and and you know why why was boxing here so important um i, I guess you can go at it this way or maybe if you want to start 
Um, before that, with some of the changes in kind of distribution technology, maybe that you know well, would be a better angle to start from. But either way, um, I'm just curious: how does boxing business start to change here at this kind of pivotal moment? There are a lot of separate strands at that time, the early 1970s, that start to weave together, not necessarily by anyone's intention, but they just, uh, as so many important events in history do, seem to fall into place. So when New York City loses its grip on sort of monopolizing boxing, largely because of new tax uh, codes that we see a few years later were terribly important because the city really was in financial peril, when New York City loses its its control over boxing. Other cities in the United States can start to make a play to be sort of the big time venue, the primary venue for the biggest prize fights, which are still really important sporting events at the time, particularly when most of the heavyweight contenders were still American. But it's also a period, um, as you know, where plenty of nation states are not content with their station in this sort of new taxonomy of the Cold War world. They don't really want to be uh, aligned with either superpower or dependent on either superpower. They would like to be sovereign, to have a say. They would like to be respected. And one of the ways that that can be achieved is to put on a big show. Some of the major sporting events like the Olympics or the FIFA World Cup uh, the bidding process takes a lot more time, sometimes more transparency, other times maybe not. Some of that um, <laughs> have played into it. But in other words, countries can't just decide to purchase their way into one of those sports mega events. But prize fighting was still every individual event up for sale. And so Jamaica finds itself in a place with a new government uh, and a sporting prime minister that thinks they can use sports as a tourist attraction and also as a signal that we are a strong, virulent, sovereign nation. We should have our own place in the Cold War world. And when they do that, I think other countries take notice that the biggest prize fights, at least, can be bought and sold without an elongated bidding process or any open books, uh, as long as, especially, if the government is in approval and willing to invest the money, they can probably buy themselves a fairly major sports event. And so Venezuela follows suit, and then what was uh, at the time Zaire follows suit, and the Philippines uh, become a sporting <laughs> capital that brings another major prize fight. So it's really this sort of domino effect of individual, non-aligned countries in the Cold War world trying to demonstrate that they are uh, important, that they are sovereign, that they are financially strong, even if that wasn't always the case. And boxing just becomes the lever they can use because it's so disorganized and so unregulated, but also still in this era with some of those really popular champions, really, really um, important. You, you, you spend a, a fair amount of time in the book talking about the, the fight in, at the time Zaire. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about why maybe that event was so important for boxing history, but also important for Foreman, too. Uh, maybe people are familiar with what happens, but maybe they're not. So uh, 
tell us a little bit about about the rumble there well that's one of those major prize fights that gets purchased by a country uh, who is trying to keep themselves in the conversation uh, as strong sovereign nations Zaire, and particularly its ruler at the time, Mobutu, had just um, seen a devaluation of, co- of copper, which affected their economy. And you see a, a really a dictatorial and authoritarian leader trying to regain some cultural cachet, even as, say, the high economic times of the past few years seem to be over. And so this is an opportunity for him to do it, to bring an event to Zaire, a global sporting event, uh, which had never been um, put on in Central Africa before to accompany it with a major music festival. I think lost in the fight because of the delay in the separation between these two events is that idea that you know it was paired a major prize fight with a concert that featured some of the most uh, famous and popular American musicians uh, at the time, as well as African musicians and Afro-Caribbean. Uh, musicians. So it was really a huge deal and tens of millions of dollars invested, not just in the fighters and the musicians, but in infrastructural investment in re, you know the airport and the lights and the roads and telephone technology and uh, all of the things that go along with putting on this major event. Um, the fight itself is billed as, you know, in many ways, sort of the the slow funeral march of Muhammad Ali. People are not just expecting that he probably can't beat this young and seemingly unstoppable foreman, but also that he might get really hurt. I mean, there are questions that will, of course, be revisited every single year until Muhammad Ali finally does retire about whether he should even be taking this fight and what kind of risks it could pose to his health. Um, And what you see from Ali is someone who at least believes he is in his finest peak physical condition as we get close to the original fight date. And if you talk to George Foreman, he believes that he was in excellent shape and his finest fighting rhythm he had ever been in as we approach the original date. And then Foreman gets cut above his eye and he's unable to fight and the event gets delayed for a whole month and you have two boxers now who feel that they are out of shape and out of rhythm and they're supposed to put on the biggest prize fight probably of the generation. So for the people who don't know who who wins the fight, how does it how does it how does it end? So the fight starts in uh, what seems like a very ominous sign especially for those who were aware of boxing's kind of sordid history and were concerned that it might not be on the level because shortly after it starts Muhammad Ali just walks back to the ropes and lays back and everyone starts to think maybe he's just not going to fight. Maybe he's going to take the $5 million purse and not really contest this and just walk away richer than he was before. And it doesn't take more than a couple of rounds for some people to realize that that was his ploy. Uh, And whether that was something he had planned the whole time because there were reports coming from his training camp, even in Pennsylvania, before he goes to Zaire, that he had been caught sometimes laying back against the rope and letting his sparring partners hit him. So maybe it was something pre-planned. Maybe it was something that he committed to after he spent a month in Zaire waiting for a new fight date, uh, diagnosed as hypoglycemic and combating that by eating mass amounts of peach cobbler 
and other suites, which again is uh, probably against contemporary sports science, but seemed to, yeah. <laughs> seemed to be the doctor's orders at the time. Um, but we see after a couple of rounds, that is his strategy. And we see Foreman and his camp not really react or adjust to it. Um, they increase the tempo. Foreman seems committed to trying to end this ploy uh, that's later going to be called a rope-a-dope. And the irony is that one of the people who actually used that method before Muhammad Ali was Archie Moore, and Archie Moore is in George Foreman's corner in that fight, and even he either didn't recognize or didn't say anything about um, the style that they were seeing right in front of them. And so eight rounds later, in a very hot, humid uh, Central African night on the precipice of monsoon season, George Foreman essentially exhausts himself, and uh, it doesn't take much of a shot from Muhammad Ali in the eighth round to knock him down. And when he's down, you see someone in a very unfamiliar position, not sure if he should or should not get up, getting mixed messages from his corner, not necessarily understanding what the referee is saying or where the count is going. Uh, And George Foreman gets counted out for the first time in his professional career and loses the title that he had held for a little over a year. And this, in some ways, I mean, um, it, it marks a major turning point in Foreman's, uh, you might say, first boxing career. Um, and that, along with some other major changes in boxing, the growing importance of TV ratings, new promoters, especially Don King, um, really make it impossible, it seemed to me in the reading, for him to get a, a good second shot, um, you know, a meaning... A, a meaningful second shot is that is that a fair reading would you say or well, so why does he why does he retire not not too much longer after this right sure uh as much as that rumble in the jungle uh which which is a tagline that the zaire government uh strongly opposed by the way just not quite as strongly as the first version which was from slave ship to championship um <laughs> it as much as it launches muhammad ali's mythology because certainly he had a great and storied career, but it was almost a little tragic uh, up to that point. But this coming back against the odds, beating the young, seemingly invincible champion, really launched the Ali mythology um, that we know today. As much as it did that, it, it really deflated George Foreman, who wasn't sure how to reconcile with losing, uh, how to be the ex-champion, and was really frustrated at the fact that he didn't get that chance for a rematch shortly after. He had been accused of not giving Joe Frazier a rematch after their championship fight. Uh, I think some people wisely may have steered Frazier away from taking that anyway. But you do see a very different George Foreman come back in a couple of ways. After a year of not fighting, uh, or not fighting seriously anyway, he does understand that if he's going to force the pressure on Muhammad Ali and his management, which was tied to the Nation of Islam, if he was going to force that pressure to get a rematch and possibly win the title back, he was going to almost need to do a, a grassroots publicity campaign. And he called it a campaign. He said, I was campaigning for a rematch. And so all of a sudden, he is a little more accessible and available, and he's doing TV interviews and game shows. Uh, He goes on even some Christian shows when uh, he says Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's manager, a guy by the name of Tom Collins, who 
clearly knew the racial and religious politics of America at the time, mentioned to Foreman, he said, you know, if the champion is Muslim, it might not hurt you to uh, emphasize yourself as a Christian challenger to him. So Foreman takes that on, uh, and you see someone really working hard to gain some public favor and trending in the right direction and building this trajectory toward a rematch. It seems like it's just a matter of time, even though Ali and his camp are probably with good reason putting that fight off as long as they can and driving the desire, which will, of course, drive up the purses. Um, And then Foreman finds himself in a similar situation in San Juan, Puerto Rico against Jimmy Young that he did in Zaire a few years earlier. Now we're on St. Patrick's Day, 1977. And he has a referee who, whether intentionally or just uh, by virtue of his style, didn't let Foreman do some of the things that he wanted to do in terms of uh, inviting and pushing. Uh, And we find a challenger who's willing to back up, move away, let Foreman tire himself out. We have really hot, really humid conditions. uh, And again, it uh, becomes apparent through the fight that Foreman is sort of wearing down. And although he makes it until the final bell, uh, it's pretty clear that he's not going to win the decision. And then the experience after that fight in the locker room is what really propels his decision to retire. Whether it's a concussion or dehydration, as some people said, or in Foreman's um, words, you know, it was a near-death experience and then a Christian rebirth. You know, after that fight, I think he realizes that Boxing is not going to work for him. The sport is not going to allow him to fight for a championship. He doesn't have a desire to do this and to hurt people anymore. Uh, But he throws that fervor with which he had been pursuing boxing into religion, into his personal religious journey, and eventually a career as a minister. So the final few chapters of your book deal with, I mean, in some ways, almost three different foremans. You have foreman as as a religious figure in which he, in his early retirement, he's clearly, um, if you compare him to Frazier Ali, uh, the, the most um, successful in some ways fighter of the, of the age, because at least he could get his own sent- sentence out you know, and he's able to, to, to be this, this uh, preacher. But that might also be, his, as, as you say, his least successful venture. And then foreman of the comeback, um, where he's doing a careful cost-benefit analysis of of coming back and what that means for him and his his religious calling as well as for his family, and then finally this post-boxing career, which almost seems to have landed in his lap super fortuitously. That which is, I will admit, the first way I I, I got to really um, know George Foreman, which was the Foreman Grill. So um, you know, in the last uh, um, you know in the last five minutes or so, um, maybe can you tell us a little bit about um, Foreman and his, his um, post-retirement, post-first retirement uh, careers and how he's trying to reinvent himself again and again? Well, I think that's the key, is that you see someone really trying to reinvent himself to find some meaning. I think that's what a lot of the spiritual journey was, trying to find, in this case, a church that feels like home and that lets him be himself. And then he realizes that the church he had joined, uh, their ministers still had their own uh, issues that he couldn't agree with or buy into. 
So eventually he starts his own church and he wants to do it his own way, preach what he, what he calls the gospel of love, a very trans-denominational uh, Christian message. But in the good works that he's trying to do, building the church and then building a youth center across the street to help kids like himself. And these, these buildings, the church and the youth center, are not far. They're just outside the Fifth Ward where he grew up. So not far away from you know, his, his um, home and from a lot of kids that he knew were born into circumstances like him. So he really decided, okay, this is my mission now to try and help other kids avoid the kind of life that I think I was destined for if I didn't get that break with the Job Corps, which of course by the 1980s is not uh, serving as many young men and women as it did in the late 1960s. But the problem, of course, is that good works take money. And although he had saved money to a degree that a lot of professional boxers hadn't, he contributed to an annuity, he says, from really his first professional fight. And so he had a nice little nest egg through the 1980s. It wasn't nice enough to do the things that he wanted to do, particularly to keep up the church and the youth center and take care of uh, families and alimonies and child support um, and all of these things. So boxing does become, again, like it, like it had in the 1960s, the quickest way for him to earn money. But when he goes back, you can see him blending some of these lessons that he had learned. From the mid-1970s, he was trying to be very personable and campaign grassroots for popular support. From his late 1960s, his, his initial professional career, he's willing to barnstorm around the country and fight anyone, not particularly good fighters, but build a resume up again, get some national headlines, some newspaper coverage. He's willing to take deals where he gets very little money up front, but he'll bet on himself and take a cut of the ticket sales afterwards. And so that's how he works himself back into a position to uh, fight for the championship again. And it takes him a few championship fights to win again. But when you see him uh, moving towards uh, a celebrity endorser and, and doing more commercials than fights, you see the same principle where he is willing to take very little up front and bet on himself, in this case, royalties for the George Foreman grill, and know that if he puts the effort in, the work into it, uh, it will probably succeed. And in that case, it succeeded far above anyone's expectations, probably even his own. It probably, just in terms of money, was his most successful career in some By ways. far. He earned, yeah. just in the, the buyout from Salton Industries, uh, over $130 million to buy his name back and stop paying those royalties, which he said some months could be six, seven figures themselves. You know, so that $130 yeah. plus million dollars far exceeds the prize money that he won as a boxer, both the first time and during his comeback. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if you had one, but I had a George Foreman grill, Andrew, so I'll admit to it. <laughs> I had a George Foreman grill in college long before I considered doing research on him. Yes, yeah. Uh, I have to tell um, everyone listening, this was a real uh, pleasure to read, and, and um, I encourage people to go pick it up. We we only have one final question, Andrew, it's one we always end with uh, on the New Books Network, which is, uh, what's next? Is there anything um, we can uh, look forward to reading uh, soon? The project that I've started uh, is moving away from race and boxing and towards ethnicity and professional wrestling, because I think 
if we're looking for the business of sports, things like boxing and wrestling that are disorganized, unregulated, that aren't part of these major corporate structures and don't enjoy some of the benefits of uh, particularly the major team sports in the United States can really give us a window into how important sports were. So I'm looking at a wrestling promoter uh, who is part of this movement in the 1930s, these discussions over whether wrestling should continue to be real or fake, uh, and how we're going to sell tickets to sports fans during the Depression when they have limited resources, uh, how we're going to make them choose wrestling matches as the one place they might spend what disposable income they have, and the way that ethnic rivalries uh, are used to really fuel that, uh, I think is just a fascinating chapter of American sports history, and I'm hoping to dig into it more uh, now that this project is out and I can focus on something else. Well, that sounds um, like an amazing project. And you know what I'd, I'd never really uh, considered, but there, w- there must have been a moment when they decided, hey, it's better to have a show than it is to have a competition, maybe. Um, so I'll be, I'll be looking forward to reading it. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, we were um, speaking today with Andrew R.M. Smith, uh, assistant professor of history at Nichols College and author of No Way But to Fight, George Foreman in the Business of Boxing. We were speaking today about the intersections between race, uh, boxing, and uh, sport. This book's out uh, this year, in fact, uh, just out from the University of Texas at Austin Press. Um, Thank you very much, Andrew, for joining us today on the New Books Network. Thank you, Keith. It was my pleasure.